are glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. First Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. It came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep coats, by the way, where was a cave, and Saul went to cover in to cover his feet. And David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. It came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him, because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. David also rose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David, by the way, you want a portrait of meekness. There it is, verse 8. And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words? saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord had delivered thee today into mine hand in the cave, and some bade me kill thee, but mine eyes spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand. And I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. As saith the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceedeth from the wicked, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. The Lord therefore be judge and judge between me and thee, and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of thine hand. And it came to pass when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And thou hast showed this day how that thou hast dealt well with me, for as much as when the Lord had delivered me into thine hand, thou killest me not. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore the Lord reward thee good for that thou hast done unto me this day. And now behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me and that thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore unto Saul and Saul went home, but David and his men got them up unto the hold." Then I said earlier, I'd read verse, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, uh, verse 5 rather, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, I think it's a tremendous picture of that principle in Matthew chapter 5. I want to say this this morning. It is impossible to be a self-willed individual and live the Christian life at the same time. I'll say that again. It's impossible to be a self-willed 
individual and live the Christian life at the same time. Jesus said, if any man will be my disciple, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul said, I die daily. What he meant was, I die to life going my way, and I do that every day. Many of our plans revolve around, and I don't, look, it's not wrong to make plans, especially when we know something is given to us of God, something is, is part of God's uh, divine responsibility in our life. You should plan to do what God wants you to do. But I said the self-willed life, the life that lives around and revolves around pleasing self, around preserving self, around promoting self, meekness is the opposite of this. Meekness says, I will be... I am expendable, if you would, for God's purpose. It's what Romans 12.1 is all about. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. A living sacrifice is just this. God is not calling. You know, it's very few people that God, God is called to be martyrs. We understand that? Some say, well, if I serve the Lord, I might die for Christ. You might, but chances are you won't, especially in the United States. Uh, we ought to thank God for that and pray for those who are facing martyrdom today. There are people facing that, and our hearts should be wide open to them and pray for them. And, but the fact is, most of us here today will draw back from the will of God, not because we're literally going to die, but because we'll lose our reputation. Because our dreams for the future might be threatened. Because we might be looked at differently in the community. Because I'd have to, to admit I've been wrong. You say, what does this have to do with this message? I think everything. David came to a point where he had to make a decision that made perfect sense on paper. Naturally, anyone speaking naturally would say, it is obvious what David should do. Including his friends said, David, God has done this for you. God has allowed you to take things in your own hands and guarantee your own future. That's exactly what David had the opportunity to do. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But he comes to a position where it looks like God has divinely put him in a place where he can finally live out the dream that God himself put in his heart. I don't know of a more difficult trial than David faced on this day. I believe this. Two things reveal our hearts. Obstacles and opportunities. Obstacles and opportunities. Obstacles reveal whether or not we're willing to quit serving the Lord and doing what's right. Opportunities reveal whether we're willing to try to do God's will our way. There are opportunities to advance our purposes, to advance things our way. And David had such an opportunity. And again, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I want to give you four things out of this text this morning in this meek man who had opportunity to do something for himself. And listen to me this morning. One of the most serious, and I say this without really any doubt in my mind, one of the most serious errors taking place in the lives of God's people, I'm talking about saved people today, is justifying sinful decisions with spiritual explanation. We make sinful decisions that are truly, ultimately based in our pride, and then we begin to prop those up with verses from the Bible and logical explanations as to why it was a good idea. I believe it was Vance Havner, and, and bear with me, I said, well, explanations and excuses, maybe I should use those two words. Vance Abner said, an excuse is nothing more than a lie stuffed inside of the skin of reason. Chew on that one for a minute. 
We make excuses. David could have easily, in this scenario, raised his hand, murdered a king, and no one and nobody but the Holy Spirit of God would have disagreed with him. Nobody. We would read about it today and say, (laughs) absolutely, that's what I would do. Nonetheless, it would have been the wrong thing. You see, if we're going to follow and be disciples of, and by the way, that is... Listen, because of of selfishness and pride, we may think God's end game was to save me from hell and then help me live a happy life on earth. That's not really it. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity, the end game, is to save me from the clutches of Satan unto the following of Jesus Christ. Discipleship is this. It's not just seeing people saved, evidence that salvation through getting dunked underwater and then go live your merry life how you please. We are to teach people to observe all His commandments. And you say, here, here's where we're going. You know, Matthew chapter 5, the Lord Jesus puts forward his perspective on the blessed life. Well, make no mistake, that's the life he's going to lead you in. You say, I don't think I can be a meek man like this. Then you might as well sign out of discipleship. Because he's meek and lowly. And therefore, if we're going to follow him, guess what we're going to have to learn to be? Meek and lowly. Can two walk together? Amos 3, 3 says, except they be. Agreed. You know what abiding is? Learning to agree with Jesus Christ. John 15 says you'll bear fruit when you abide in Him. You know when we stop abiding in Jesus Christ? The moment we start disagreeing with Him. You say, well, I'm so spiritual, I never disagree with God. You're so unspiritual, you're not honest. If you're breathing, you're going to have days you don't agree with God's perspective. Friend, that's the way, that, look, that's why we are disciples. He's teaching us how to think because we don't know. If you ask me what the blessed life was, I would say, the blessed life, do everything you can, have a a life free of health problems. That's a blessing. God may not see it that way. He may know my greatest blessing will come through a health problem. True? The blessing is to make sure you're financially stable without any financial difficulties. I don't think there's anything wrong with financial stability, by the way. If God allows you to have that, praise God for it. But the fact is, God may know that financial stability may lift me up in pride and ruin me. So he may let me be stable, but never have too much or more than I need because he knows what's best for me. He may not, a number of financial afflictions and difficulties and problems come along to teach me that money is not God. All I'm trying to say this morning is if this text of Scripture, you say, man, could I actually see my enemy who's trying to slit my throat in front of me, as a warrior, have the opportunity to finish this thing and be done with the misery that I'm living in and not do it? This is what the Lord is going to teach us and how He's going to teach us to live. You see, we talk about living, and you hear me use the term many times, living a principled life. The Bible way of saying that is living by faith. Meaning, we make our decisions because we believe what God says, even when we can't see that it makes sense to do it. And if we're going to be meek people... As God has called us to be, we need to understand what meekness looks like. And I believe one of the practical aspects of today's message is this message could help you make a decision this morning you've been needing to make and confused about, I'm not sure what God wants me to do. You may have a heart say, I want to do what God wants me to do, but man, I've got this opportunity in front of me and something doesn't seem right, but man, it also seems like God actually gave me the opportunity. I cannot tell you the number of people I've met that they believe if the door is open, it means God did it. You better be careful with that. Just because you have the opportunity to do something doesn't mean God put it there. Satan might have put it there. 
Or God may not be giving you an opportunity to do something wrong, but the opportunity to do something right. See, Satan will tempt you to sin. God will tempt you to do right. The Bible says God tempted Abraham, didn't he? What was he tempting Abraham to do? Do a right thing. And Abraham passed with flying colors. So let's see four things this morning in this text in 1 Samuel chapter 24, where we just read. Uh, first of all, David's oppression, verses 1 through 3, you get a pretty clear picture of what's going on in the life of David. If you were, if you'd gone back to, I think it's chapter 22, he had taken his parents and they, David had been hiding in the cave of Engedi. It's very likely the same cave, taking his parents to the king of Moab to have them protected. Meaning, David got to the point where he understood, not only am I in danger of being killed, if Saul can get to my family and kill them, he'll do that too. Tells you the kind of oppression he was under. So in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 24, it says, And it came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines. As David would be being chased by Saul, and all of a sudden the Philistines would come on, and David Saul would have to say, Look, let me put on hold my campaign to kill my best general and go, go, let's go fight the enemy for a little bit, and I'll come back and go back to my campaign to kill my, my top general. David was his top performing soldier in his military. He was, he was a, nobody was a better friend to King Saul than David was. And yet because Saul was filled with jealousy and envy, he was out to get him. So it came to pass, verse 1, when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel. So not just 3,000 men. He handpicks 3,000 men, saying, I want you and you and you. We have a major campaign to do here. All right? 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep coats by the way, where was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet. And David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And we'll talk more about verse 4 in just a moment. All I want us to see, how many of you would like to have what we've explained here? We talked about in the beginning here, in the introduction to this message, that here you've got a, a, a king who's fought many battles, he has 3,000 of his choicest men, so he gets the Navy SEALs and starts to come after you. Oh, that's lovely. Now, David, he had a group of guys with him. It went from a couple hundred to 400. By the time you get to the end of 1 Samuel, David had a great group of 600 motley men. And they were. They were the indebted. They were, the, they were men that were frustrated with their king. They had problems. And so it was like Robin Hood and his merry men. I mean, it really. Uh, I've heard it said many times. What was here was like the Baptist church. All your disgruntled and indebted people showed up. <laughs> so you said, well, that was not very nice to us. I'm just speaking the truth in love. Amen. <laughs> so here's David. What I'm trying to say, these are not trained soldiers. David was... But his four, five, six hundred men were not. These are men who, who had been overtaxed by the king, perhaps men whose kids had been taken one by one instead of working the family farm, had had to go work for the king in his kitchen. That's exactly what God said he would do. He would take the best of the land for himself, and they would be stuck losing their best to serve him. And so here's David. He's got all these disgruntled people around him, but they're not trained soldiers. They're following David. They're helping David. There's a handful of trained soldiers. Then you got King Saul and his 3,000 choicest soldiers on David's heels. At the very best, the odds are 5 to 1. And they're more than that because the 5 after the 1 are far more powerful. I don't know about you. I've had some instances where I thought, ah, I don't feel good about the situation we're in. You sit there and you wonder, 
you know, if we were to get attacked by those four, five, six guys right there, what chance do we stand? You try to get in a fight with five guys at one time, you better be good at what you're doing, or you're not coming out, you're not going to come out winning that thing, right? David is truly someone who is oppressed. Number one, he was oppressed unjustifiably. David, if you study scripture, we don't have time to do all the background on it, and we'll trust you to either look in your own Bibles or know what already is in the text of scripture. But if you know clearly what happened in 1 Samuel 17, David goes and fights Goliath when Saul is too afraid to do so because, may I say this, nothing will hinder you more than a, than a, than a conscience that's defiled. Saul's conscience got defiled. He was in rebellion. He would not obey God. This is an amazing thing. He was told to wipe out the Amalekites, man, woman, children, cattle, the entire lot, and he wouldn't do it. Some chapters later, when he gets a chance to wipe out an entire city of priests who were servants of God, guess what? He did. Men, women, children, cattle. He wiped out more of his own people when he was told not to than the enemy that he was told to do. The rebel does opposite of what God says and does it with a whole heart. Here's Saul, and he's got this troubled conscience on 1 Samuel 17. He doesn't have enough courage or enough confidence that God will help him because God's spirit has departed from him that there stands a giant calling him and the rest of Israel a bunch of cowards and, and claiming that God is dead and that the Philistine gods were more powerful than their God. And Saul sits back powerless, the biggest man in the kingdom physically, powerless to do anything. Here comes along a little shepherd kid and does what the king wouldn't and couldn't do. You know what? Spiritually, when you're born again, the Spirit of God will enable you to do things your flesh could never produce. And your flesh says, I don't like this. And that's where that screaming tug of war comes in. The flesh saying, I'm still on the throne. You follow your lusts. You follow your passions. You follow your impulses. And the Spirit of God saying, no, don't do that. And there's this conflict waging here. And so here's David unjustifiably being pursued by Saul because Saul was jealous because after the battle with Goliath, the women in the, in the, in the, in the kingdom began to sing, Saul hath slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Oh, Saul couldn't handle somebody getting more credit than him even though it was true. It didn't matter if it was true. He wanted the perception to be, I'm the big gahoon around here. This is what's important. And so... He decided the only thing to do with David is, if he's going to ruin my ego, i got to kill him. May I say this? There is a nature in every one of us that says, I am not willing to be perceived as I really am. So let me be sure that I defend and prop up my own ego no matter what. And what happens is, is there's that conflict we've been saying... But in David's, let's go back to the story here. In David's case, he is being pursued not because he had tried to kill Saul. David had gone out and fought for Saul. He made Saul look better. If Saul could think clearly, David went out, won battles, and he's exalting his king, doing what his king wants. He had done nothing but bless King Saul. So he's being oppressed unjustifiably. Meaning there, there was no just cause in why Saul was trying to kill him. Number two, he's being oppressed unequally. Not only is it unjustified, it's unequal. Uh, here's David, and he is, he is not being dealt with fairly. Christian, hear me this morning. You're not going to have to get hold of this. Because there's coming a time, if you just study what's going on across our northern border, if you just study what's going on across the northern border, 
There are some people that are being gone after and are oppressed. So study what goes on in China. Study what goes on in other places where Christians are being targeted and you scratch your head and say, why? They wanted to sing and boy, that's deadly, isn't it? And they wanted to hear preaching from the Bible and all of a sudden, I mean, you're, they're being treated like they're terrorists. I don't mean to, look, I, I'm not going to preach COVID and all that, but help me here. You have people that are literally running businesses for chopping little children to pieces. And they are treated like the healthcare providers of our world. You have other people who refuse to put a cloth on their face and they're treated like murderers. You gotta say something's not right. <laughs> Would you agree? Oppressed unjustifiably. So what do we do? Rise up and kill. Ah, careful. David was oppressed unjustifiably. He was oppressed unequally. How many of you think that a little church of two or three hundred people is any match for any federal government? No way. If our federal government decided to come after Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church, friend, don't you count on meeting here next week. We're not going to win that battle. We'll have to meet some other place. That's unequal. We were no match. I'm just talking about person. Would you agree? No match. No match. I didn't say it'll shut the church down. People say, oh no, what happens if the federal government shuts the church down? They have no power to do that. The church doesn't belong to the federal government. It belongs to Jesus Christ. You may have to meet in some other place. But the fact, the fact is, the only person who has the right to shut down a church is the one who owns it. What does this have to do with our message? Everything. I'm telling you, we've got to get a hold of what meekness is if we're not going to lose our testimony for God. Here's a man who is being oppressed we're not there yet. This room, we're not, we're not there yet. Or we wouldn't be here this morning doing what we're doing. Let's pray we don't get there. But there are going to be times in your Christian life you are. You, it may be in the workplace that you get ganged up on. It may be in, in some other situation where you are facing unequal odds for one reason. You have the Spirit of God dwelling in you and the world hates your guts because they hate His guts. That's unequal and it's unjustifiable. Here's what happens in our minds. If I am being oppressed unjustifiably and unequally, then I have the right to vindicate and revenge myself. Right? Friend, we hear that preached all the time right now. That's What we hear is, it's okay to burn cities down because you're oppressed. No, it's not. It's still not right. I promise you, I'm not trying to preach a cultural, you know, let's correct the culture. I'm trying to help us see some things in our own lives because these are some decisions we have to face. You talk about an oppressed people, Christians have always been. I'm talking about Bible-believing Christians. I'm not talking about those who are just trying to blend in and be like the world. I'm talking about people who love God, want to serve God. You will be unequally and unjustifiably attacked for just belonging to the Lord and living a righteous life. Yea, all that live God in Christ Jesus shall... Suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 2.13 tells us. And so this morning, David was oppressed. Number two, in his oppression, he was given an opportunity. Here he is hiding in the sides of a cave with his few hundred men. I can just imagine. I got, I got an imagination that gets kicked in. I can imagine they're in there and they're about to come out. And so I says, whoa, 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 whoa. Somebody's coming up the hill. Listen. They're coming up the side of the rocks and they can hear 3,001 men coming. Don't you reckon? <laughs> ah, pull back, pull back. Just wait. And all of a sudden, a silhouette enters the cave. And somebody says, you've got to be kidding. This is exactly what the Bible says. David, God has given you your day. 
look what God just did. I'll be honest with you. You know God's in the details when odds are beyond comprehension and they're in your favor, right? When you have odds in your favor like that, then you know it's God. Well, it was God that brought about this opportunity, but not for the obvious reason. The reason. The obvious reason would be God put your enemy in this cave so you can be done with him. Now, let's just stop. Let's do a little homework real quick. Was David the rightful next king on the throne? Who said so? Did David know it? At this time, was David the anointed king? He was. Let me ask you a question. Who are going to be the rightful possessors of this earth after Jesus returns? That would be us. Do we know it? Now, here's where this gets into some doctrine. How many have ever heard of the doctrine called dominionism? If you've not, you're going to at some point in time. They may not call it that, but that is we are bringing the kingdom in. So what we do is we start to conquer now through moral majorities and things like this and taking the world because it's going to be ours. Friend, that's not the Bible. Blessed are the meek is. You see, we're to walk in the footsteps of our Savior, not take the kingdom by force. That's what they did before he came. He said that the wicked took the kingdom by violence until John the Baptist came on the scene. Meaning violent men said, I want the kingdom of God. No, I want the kingdom of God. And they're fighting for who's going to have God's kingdom. And God says, it's not going to be that way. I'm not going to give it that way. But the meek are the ones who are going to inherit the earth. And here's a picture of that. David has an opportunity to do a couple of things. He has an opportunity, number one, to preserve himself. To preserve himself. Here is the man that is trying. David has no doubt. Here's a man that's doing his best to kill David. That is his stated objective. It's an obvious objective. Verse 4, the Bible says, And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, David, this is fulfillment of prophecy. Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Now, God had never told David that, but the men are interpreting for him. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily, meaning I believe David was actually thinking about it. He's got his knife, and here's Saul, and Saul hadn't even got a clue that David's in the cave because David is a good at hiding. And Saul's got his robe of his, his skirt of his robe out there, and David, I think, is thinking about getting him. He thinks, and he says, I can't do it. But his men are encouraging him. Kill him. Kill him right now while you can. David has an opportunity for the one guy that's trying to kill him and has, seems to have the power to do it to be done with it. All he's got to do is stick a dagger in Saul's side, drag that old carcass out and say, boys, go home, I'm king now. How many of us would not be king if given the opportunity? If God said today you get to chart your own course and here's a decision you can make, Here's a decision right in front of you. Maybe it's a financial decision. Maybe it's a uh, family decision. I don't know what kind of decision, but you got it in front of you. You think, this decision will finally allow me to control and navigate my own circumstances. That's where David was. He says, if I kill Saul, he can't kill me. <laughs> he had an opportunity to preserve his own life, and he had an opportunity not only to preserve himself, but he had an opportunity to promote himself. When does David get to be king? Well, as soon as that guy's dead. <laughs> as soon as he's dead, I'm more important. You know what? With the death of Saul, if one one nice slip of that dagger, and all of a sudden David goes from a flea and a dog to a lion. You see what I'm saying? Often these are the kind of things that promote and fuel our decisions. Is you know what? If I do this, 
I get to take a step up in life. If I do this, it'll preserve my life. Jesus said, except a man lose his life, he'll not find it. And if a man will lose his life for my sake, then he'll keep it. And so then here's his opportunity to preserve himself, to promote himself. But let's be reminded of David's objective. Verse 5, and it came to pass afterward, not after killing Saul, after cutting off a piece of his robe, afterward that David's heart smote him. He's sensitive to God. Because he had cut off Saul's skirt and he said unto the men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing. Hold on, what did he just say? The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master. Now hold on. This is where I believe this message can help you so much. How many of us would never have gotten to where David is right here? Because let me, look, let me help you. Here, here, if this is the criteria for your decisions in defining the will of God, when there are unexplainable odds, I know God's in it. I mean, look at my circumstances. What are the chances? There's the odds. What are the chances of me and Saul being in the cave at the same time, me being in there first, him not knowing, and having the opportunity to take his life and preserve myself? You help me. How many caves do you think there were in that part of the world? What were the chances of those two men being in the same place at the same time on the same day and David being in there first? Now, if you're making your decisions today by that, well, I'm looking at how, how um, this is, I mean, I hear this all the time. I know this is God. So he says, I know, I'm, I'll just use this as a hypothetical. I know I'm supposed to marry that person. It has to be God because, you know, I was in an airport and she was in an airport and we happened to be at the same place at the same time. That had to be God. Mm, no, it didn't. If it violates a Bible principle, friend, it's not God. I don't care how circumstantially strong the case may be. Here's, here's, the, next, here's the next standard that was in place, okay? He had unbelievable odds. What are the chances? Number two, all his friends were for it. Who was around David saying, don't do it? Don't do it? You say, man, I don't have anybody that's telling me I shouldn't do this. Well, then obviously it's God's will. Go right ahead not he had one person telling him don't do it the holy spirit of god i want to tell you something if every friend you have says you know what i think this is a good opportunity for you you should advance you should do this you should do this the holy spirit of god through the word of god is saying you can't do this and be obeying me david knew there was a scripture in the law of moses that said touch not mine anointed do my prophets no harm Meaning, don't you play God and decide when you're going to cut off one of mine anointed ones. That's not your business, that's mine. Don't you step into the realm of, listen, friend, we step into God's throne more than we think. I believe it. This morning, one of two people is playing God in my life. Me or the Holy Spirit. But there's not room for both. And on this day, David had unbelievable odds putting him in a position to self-preserve and self-promote. For most of us, that would have been enough to say, obviously, God did this. And I think they probably said what David was thinking. There's no way. There's no way. This has to be God. I mean, do you realize what the, what the chances are? Let me give you another very practical illustration. You have a job opportunity. It's going to give you the opportunity to have financial security. It's going to give you the opportunity to have better health care. Uh, better paychecks, a better retirement. The only problem is it is going to cause you to have to diminish your faithfulness to the house of God. That's all. Not a big deal. You're just not going to be able to be in church like you should. And like you should is not forsaking, meaning when you can be here, you are here. Amen? 
That's not my interpretation. That's what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Forsaking means I can be there and I choose not to assemble with God's people. Amen? Amen. Not a popular teaching today, but it's still in the Bible. But this job, it'll preserve me and promote me. I've always just been an entry-level guy. This is supervisory. There's room for advancement in the company. I'm not going to be able to spend time with my wife and children like I have before. I hope it doesn't influence our marriage negatively. You realize what's happening here? And all your friends say, man, you better jump this. These kind don't come all the time. I watched my dad, and I praise God for a good example on this Father's Day. Uh, he had resigned a pastorate in Middle Tennessee to try to minister to our family. We were a hurting family at that time. He said, I need to minister to my family. He moved us to a good church, made sure we got in a good church under a good pastor in a good spiritual atmosphere. That church was experiencing revival right then. It's the only church I've ever been in. There was, there was such a moving of God all the time. And anybody who was in that church in just a few short years would tell you the same thing. God was doing a unique work at that time. And that's where God put us at that time. And I went out with him job hunting. He would go job hunt during the day. And he had a principle. If it's going to cause me to abandon assembly with God's people, the job is out. That was the principle he lived by. When I left home, he said, I very strongly encourage you, Nevin, make this your conviction that church comes before money. Seek ye first the kingdom of money and his righteousness, the kingdom of God. And church is just one aspect of that. Your Bible reading Seek your, seek your Bible before you seek the news or seek any other spiritual, eternal things first. Then the temporal comes, amen. So there's a lot of principles that lead you to that position. That was his position. I remember one day he got back in the car and he had applied for a job and he had, a, he had good work experience. He had machine shop experience. He had meat cutting experience. And he's following those experiences looking for secular work. And there was a machine shop, if I remember correctly, and they were offering him 18, 20 bucks an hour back in 1995. That's pretty good money. And I said, you get the job? He said, I don't think so. Well, why? He said, well, they wanted me to work a swing shift. He said, I would have four Sundays off uh, and one on. And I told him I couldn't do it. Instead, he went and cut meat 60 hours a week, never missing church, never keeping us out of church for eight bucks an hour. We never lacked food. We never lacked clothing. And during that period of time, God won my heart to himself as his servant, watching consistency in the life of someone living by principle. Don't you? I was 15 years old and I was watching very closely. Is God who we say he is? I believe this with all my heart. There were friends that when that particular job came open, would have said, man, you ought to do this. Your family has needs. You got to pay your bills, brother. I know I'm preaching right at home this morning. That's the intent. Christianity that doesn't touch our lives is useless as last week's garbage. Amen? Amen. And here's David with a decision to self-preserve and a decision to self-promote. Who in their right mind would pass this one up? Somebody that's being led of God. I understand how logical this decision was. Wouldn't it have been logical just to go ahead and kill him? I mean, couldn't you have made the argument, David, murder is sin, but self-defense is not. And I believe that, by the way. But there was a Bible verse. The only thing that kept David from moving forward in life was a Bible verse. Touch not mine anointed. 
And he said, I can't. I can't go forward by making sinful decisions. I can't move forward by making decisions that violate and forego the will of God. I would rather be pursued as a dog and a flea knowing that I'm in the will of God than be king knowing that I'm not. I hope you're hearing me this morning. Friend, it it flies in the face of reason many times, the decisions we must make as Christians, but this is what meekness is. I'm willing to be thought a fool by my friends if it means being a friend to God. How many of his friends do you think thought this was a good idea? Mm, Zero. Because you know what? It wouldn't only preserve his life, it would preserve theirs too. Who would you rather be king, Saul or David? I mean, honestly, who would you rather be king? That's not a hard one. Look, if you don't kill him, I will. I'll volunteer. Then we'll have you, David, as our king instead of that rotten skunk who's trying to kill us. But David said, the only problem is I have to disobey God to do that. And I'm not willing to disobey God for personal advancement. I'm not willing to disobey God for personal preservation. Friend, this is Bible Christianity. Jesus Christ could have disobeyed the Father and saved Himself a cross. But He didn't. And aren't you glad? Today, here's David with a decision. He had an opportunity to preserve himself and an opportunity to promote himself. But his his objective in life was not self-promotion. His objective in life was not self-pleasure. His objective in life was not self-preservation. His objective in life was pleasing his God. Listen to what he says. David says uh, in verse 6 again, he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing. I know you're telling me to do it, but the Lord says don't unto my master. He said, The Lord's anointed to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. By the way, gentlemen, this morning we talked about valor in Sunday school. You want to look what manly leadership looks like? This man says, at my own expense, at my own misery, I am not going to let you do something that's going to throw us all out of God's will. And I know you want him dead. And I know I want him dead. And I know he is the source of misery in my life. And having the opportunity to make that end, I am tempted. But I know it will be disobedience to God. And I am not willing to pursue a path that includes disregard for the will of God. And I ask you this morning, are you on such a path? Is there some aspect or facet of your life that you know in your own conscience is not what God would choose for you, but you've said, But in this scenario, and when I came to that decision, I mean, Pastor, you wouldn't believe how God provided for me to make this decision that is in violation of the Bible. I've had people explain why their marriage is of God when it violates a Bible principle. Some young man wants to marry some unsaved young lady. But Pastor, you you might not understand, but God put us together. No, He didn't. Because the Bible says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. God did not do that. But you don't know the circumstances surrounding it. But we know the Bible. Bible is better than circumstances. Bible is better than friendly advice. Bible is better than how I feel about something. We operate on the Word of God. David says, I'm going to make a decision. My circumstances say kill him. My friends say kill him. My emotions say kill him. God says don't. 
And I'm going to operate on principle rather than passion. And I'm not going to let you guys kill him either. He's willing to stand against his own friends in order to do what is right. In love and kindness, I'm sure. But he did. His objective was God's approval, God's acceptance, God's blessing, God's pleasing, God's will. Now I say this. So come a time you say, I want God's will for my life. And you will be given an opportunity to settle for something else. I believe most young people, before they meet the person that God would have them marry, meet somebody else. And they have the opportunity to forfeit God's best for something that seems like what they want. And so then we could use so many different illustrations. David's oppression, David's opportunity. David's objective was God's approval, God's acceptance, God's glory, God's will. Number four, his overcoming. His overcoming. If you continue with the story of David's life, all the way through the end of 1 Samuel, you know, the first part of 2 Samuel, there came a point with Saul, it got so bad. David was so fearful. He said, there is but a step between me and death. And he fled to the Philistines. And I believe that was a wrong decision, by the way. He fled down to the Philistines. He hid there for about 18 months. Uh, while he was, he continued to fight against God's enemies, privately, secretly. But my point is this, there came a day when David said, I'm not going to go forward by disobeying God. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to take this matter in my own hands and remove Saul. I'm not going to do it. What God did in time, he enabled David to be patient. David was able to wait and wait and wait. There were multiple times he had, he had another opportunity. He found Saul asleep in a, in a valley. God had put a deep sleep on him. And he had another opportunity to kill him. And his friends again said, get him. And he said, I won't do it. I'm not going to step into promotion and power that way. I'll live this way rather than do it the wrong way. May I say this this morning? Let me just say this very quickly before moving on. Young person, you'd be better better to be a 50-year-old maid unmarried than married to the wrong person. You wait on God. Career person, you'd be better making next to nothing in the will of God than making big bucks out of the will of God. You you just go right on down the line because these are the decisions we have to make that we think will preserve us or protect us or promote us. David's overcoming. He was patient but enabled by God to be... Every turn of the road, God would cut Saul off before Saul would kill him. God would defeat him before God would kill him. He enabled David to be patient, to wait on God. Until finally in battle, I believe it's 2 Samuel 1, Saul goes out in battle and God lets the Philistines have the victory and in a moment of time, David's enemies are dead. And God did what David refused to do because God put Saul in office and David said it's going to be God that gets him out. I'm not going to compromise uh, to get that way. How many, how many of us know this? In politics today, we say something like this. Well, you've got to fight fire with fire. Meaning the only way to beat corrupt people is you've got to be corrupt like them. Both parties have done it. And boy, it's really blessed our nation. Hasn't it? How about in our personal lives? We get upset with politicians for making compromises for personal gain. How about us? Do we say, well, the only way to make this decision, I wouldn't normally disregard what the Bible says, but I have no other choice here. You always have the choice to do what's right if you're willing to pay the cost. If you pay the cost, the value is well worth the cost. Amen? And so David was enabled to be patient, wait on God. And in due time, he was exalted to a position of power. After Saul was dead, after Saul was dead, immediately the kingdom starts coming together. 
For seven years, David reigned in Hebron while he waited on God to establish him as king. Then he went to Jerusalem and God established him. And he was the greatest king that Israel has ever had and the greatest king they will ever will have until Jesus comes. Why? Because he said, if, if moving forward involves disobedience to God, I want no part. I'm going to make a principled decision of faith. I'm going to pull my hand back. Look, if you would, at 2 Samuel chapter 22. We're about done. You've been good listeners this morning. 2 Samuel 22, verse 1. And David spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my Savior. Thou savest me from violence. I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised and so shall I be saved from mine enemies. Verse 5, when the waves of death death compassed me, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God. And he did hear my voice out of his temple. And my cry did enter into his ears. The earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wroth. And he goes on to explain what God did on his behalf. But he goes on down. If you look, if you would, in verse 33, God is my strength and power, and he maketh my way perfect. He maketh my feet like hinds feet and setteth me upon my high places. He teacheth my hands to war so that a bow of steel is broken by mine arms. Thou hast also given the shield of thy salvation, and thy gentleness hath made me great. Thou hast enlarged my steps under me. That's that enabling to be patient, so that my feet did not slip. Uh, I have pursued mine enemies and destroyed them and turned not again until I had consumed them. We'll stop reading there. You know what you see in David's life? He's, He's writing this psalm as the king. You know what? Everybody around him probably say, well, you just missed your opportunity to be king. And he knew who made him king, who called him to be king. Look it, in this life, there are going to be times when the way of God doesn't make a lick of sense. But if I wait on God, it's going to keep me miserable. One of the greatest lies of Satan is if you trust God, you'll be disappointed. The Bible says, Romans 8, 28, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8 says this in the middle of the chapter, verse uh, 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Let me ask you something. If I make some mm, subtle compromises here because the circumstantial evidence is so strong and my friends are so encouraging and yet I know I'm disobeying God and I get ahead in this life, how many of David would have become king if he killed Saul? Yeah. But you know what? Down the line, do you think, you know what would have happened to his kingdom? Same thing happened to Saul's. Saul was preserving his kingdom the same way David would have to gain it. Saul's killing people to stay king. David says, I'm not going to do it. That's not right. How about us as Christians? We say, you know, my life is difficult and I can make this one decision that would make life so much simpler. It would advance me and move me ahead. But what about when you stand before your king someday? Then how are we going to be? Well, I'm so glad I disobeyed you. No, no. No, you know, it's been said so many times, but... Good and right decisions are hard to make and easy to live with. Bad decisions are very easy to make and difficult to live with. And this morning, I, this is a general message. It's broad in many ways. I've made some specific applications, but that may not be your application. 
but you may be facing some decisions today, and the Christian life may seem to you like, good night. You know, if I would just make a couple of compromises, my life would get a lot easier. If I would just quit thinking about that verse and just move forward with my decision, or maybe you've already made these wrong decisions. Maybe back there somewhere you had a decision you made and all the circumstances said it was right and all your friends said it was right, but the Word of God has showed you that it wasn't. What do we do now? Shore up that decision, double down in your defenses, or repent? Say, you know what? I made a decision in my fleshly reasoning, but it wasn't right. You know what? If God has brought a message to you today that's revealed that, that's His mercy. That's him saying, you can start doing right now. Amen. David's life was not free of mistakes. It's just when he made mistakes and sinned and God corrected him, he got back on course. What a picture of meekness. He had power in his hand to promote and preserve his own life and he refused to use it in order to please God. How about us this morning? We have a power in our hand called our will. We can make decisions. Are we making those decisions to preserve and promote ourselves? And justifying ourselves, so I'm unjustifiably being oppressed and all this. Or are we using our deciding power to say, you know what, I'm willing if I must to suffer for a while in order to do what's right in his sight. Mm -hmm.